Well, good morning. I'd uh, invite all of you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, we should be in store for some good gospel preaching this morning because there's a lot of very clear gospel content here. You know, one person that really needed the gospel of grace who was wrapped up in a lot of religious, legalistic, almost just insanity was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther has made his mark on the church. And I think just to give a little bit of a back brief on him, he was an Augustinian monk and he was the top of his class. But to understand what he was going through, and why some people actually um, psychologically have diagnosed him as someone who was clinically out of it and insane and kind of crazy. You got to understand that he was a Augustinian monk who was trying to solve his sin problem by doing things or not doing things. He's trying to solve an inside problem with an outside solution. And I think we can kind of relate to that and relate to him a bit. Because if you try to do that, you'll make yourself crazy. He said, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. So the Augustinians were known for moral and physical discipline. They slept and studied in small and generally unheated rooms. In addition to making vows of chastity, obedience, and poverty, Luther and other monks, they engaged in formal worship. They would wake up at one in the morning or two in the morning, and they would pray um, for sessions, and then they would do it for 45 minutes, seven times throughout the remainder of the day. He said that the first year of his monkery or being in the monastery, he said the devil was very quiet. It's kind of like becoming, you know, new into the church, like things are all fine, right? He says things changed dramatically in years that followed. After an initial year of peace, Luther began to experience feelings of guilt and despair. Right, this is quoting him again. When I was a monk, I made a great effort to live according to the requirements of the monastic rule. I made a practice of confessing and reciting all my sins, but always with prior contrition. I went on to confession frequently and performed assigned penances faithfully. Nevertheless, my conscience could never achieve certainty, but was always in doubt and said, you have done this. You have not done this correctly. You were not contrite enough. You omitted this in your confession. One of his uh, mentors, uh, Johann Staupitz, said that when he would go into confession, he went in for six hours one time in confession with Stalpitz, and he afterwards Stalpitz said, can you confess something a little bit more serious than what you're talking about? I mean, he listing off the most egregious sins. Anyway, Luther was just, he was going crazy. He said, I went to confession frequently. He said, therefore, the longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more uncertain, weak, and troubled I continually made it. In this way, by observing human traditions, I transgressed them even more. And by following the righteousness of the monastic order, I was never able to reach it. 
So for 10 years, Luther labored with increasing feelings of guilt and doubt. And he said, I saw many who tried with great effort and best intentions to do, to do everything possible to appease their conscience. Now, this is my favorite out of all the little dumb research I did. They wore hair shirts. That's what monks did. Hair shirt. I had to look it up. What's a hair shirt? These are shirts made of hair that they would wear that would just rough them up. It's like the most itchy sweater you could possibly put on, right? And just, just to, you know, make your life miserable in an act of penance, hair shirts. That was new for me. They fasted, they prayed, they tormented and wore out their bodies with various exercises so severely that if they had been made of iron, they would have been crushed. And yet the more they labored, the greater their terrors became. Luther went to Rome the first time for the first time, and they had supposedly, allegedly taken the steps that Christ ascended to um, be confronted by Pontius Pilate before the cross, and they had recast those steps in Rome. It's called the Scala Santa, Holy Stairway. It's still there in some form or fashion, but apparently Luther went up every step on his knees, saying a prayer of repentance and legalistically trying to purge himself. Trying to solve your life's problems like this is very disturbing. And we kind of laugh at Luther's insane approach to get himself right. He was a very motivated guy, right? But we all do the same thing at varying degrees because there are two major ditch-like temptations. You want to be on the road of the gospel, but on one ditch side is license or just the freedom to do whatever you want. It's where you say, look, I'm fine. I'm in Christ. So I'm going to live however I want to. The other ditch is to fall into the ditch of legalism where you say, I'm a Christian. I believe I'm a Christian, but I'm still trying to solve my sin problem with my own effort. Anybody relate? This passage before us should help us to get out of legalism and get on with the gospel. Someone who is uh, bound up in legalism or a new Christian is like a person who is a newly trained um, kid in a karate class. And I remember being um, with a sensei instructor in fifth grade. I think he was giving a little lesson to the fifth graders. And he said, look, there's no one more dangerous to himself than a newly trained kid in karate. You know, just enough karate to kill yourself. Or get yourself killed. One pastor I went to one time when I was working through legalism personally, he wisely counseled me and said, look, Jeff, as a young kid, he just said, Jeff, you need to move from a Christianity of have-tos to a Christianity of want-tos. The have-tos need to change to the want-tos. That's a simple way to talk about what the new covenant gospel afresh should be doing in your life. Now, please don't be sort of turned off or, or confused by the word covenant. We don't always use that word today. It just means promise. The gospel is a promise that God makes to you that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you're saved. It's nothing you did. It's all of what he did. We rely completely upon his work of grace and we receive it. It's a promise. It's by the power of the gospel that our hearts are forever changed. Very different than the old covenant, which was a promise made by God that was a conditional promise. If you obey, then you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then you will fall out of favor with me. And the sacrificial system would have to make that up with ongoing sacrifices. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's what was given to the children of Israel when they left Egypt. 
We are under the new covenant, a new covenant. So sin is an inside problem, but it can't be dealt with by an outside solution. We need an inside solution. We looked at Jeremiah's quotation in Hebrews chapter 8 last week. We kind of touched our toe into that. Half of chapter 8 in Hebrews is a quote from Jeremiah 31. It's a quotation that's an expanded quotation from the Greek version of the Old Testament that because the New Testament author wrote it, it's inspired. But this is from the inspired text of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31 verse 7 just to catch us back up it says the first covenant if the first covenant meaning the mosaic covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second there would have been no reason to look for something else but everybody was under the old covenant was looking for something new they were driving forward for something that could free them from what they were under So to open this text up that leads us to the new covenant, we begin to answer one of two questions last week. First of all, why the old covenant failed? That's point one. Why did the old covenant fail? That was verses six through nine is talking all about that. Basically, a new covenant was promised because the old covenant was never meant to succeed. Again, it was a covenant made through Moses between God and Israel based on blessing or retribution. And it had a fading glory, 2 Corinthians 3 talked about. It was never meant to be permanent. The old covenant was based on Israel's obedience. And I asked, why why did it fail? What was wrong with it? Well, nothing was really wrong with the covenant. Look at verse 8. It says, for he finds fault with them. It was the Israelites' disobedience that broke the covenant apart. The covenant, the old covenant, just just to throw this in, I want you to hear this, was not graceless. It was not an ungracious covenant. It just wasn't the total package. The Abrahamic covenant was before the Mosaic covenant. God's promise to Abraham really is the promise of grace that spans from Genesis to Revelation, that you're saved by what God does, not by what we do. The Mosaic covenant, though, was a gracious covenant. It wasn't meant to foster legalism. It was based out of uh, the Israelites being freed from Egypt. Exodus 19.4, they were carried on eagles' wings. There's a tender tone. Look back at Hebrews 8, verse 9. Not like the covenant I made with your fathers, with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand. Do you see that tender tone? They were freed from slavery. The covenant was based on their gracious deliverance. God had made an intervention for Israel and said, obey, but it was still inferior. It was still limited. It was still conditional. Verse nine, at the end, it says, they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So why was it ever put there in the first place? Why did we need the 10 commandments? Because the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue makes up a good summary of what the Mosaic Covenant is. The Ten Commandments still are helpful. They're still good. The law is good. Why? Because it shows us our sin. It shows us the standard of God's holiness. It reflects who God is. God is a God of holiness. So we shouldn't steal, kill, commit adultery, dishonor parents, right? 
We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't covet. I mean, God's law is good, but God's law shows us something. It shows us how sinful we really are. It's a mirror to us, and it shows us we can't keep the law, and it shows us that we need Jesus, right? So that's, that's the purposes. Those are purposes behind the Mosaic law. We need grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone. And so answering our understanding of the new covenant and answering this next question will help us to persevere in the Christian life. Remember Hebrews 12, one and two speaks of running the race of endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How do you keep running in the Christian life by legalism, by trying to fix yourself? No, you run by faith. You run by faith. You believe in Jesus and believing in Jesus is what keeps the cardiovascular spiritual life going. You're believing in Christ. You believed you're on the race and you keep believing. How do you do that? Well, let's answer this question beginning out of verse 10. Why the new covenant is better than the old. That's what this author is saying. I've set the stage. The Mosaic covenant was, was good but limited, and it was destined to fail. And now we're going to answer the question, why the new covenant's better than the old. First of all, it's internal. It is internal. We're talking about a heart change that the new covenant promises to all who believe. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Stop there. It's a covenant, again, that was predicted in the Old Testament. In one sense, it was live in the Old Testament because Jeremiah is saying this is what really is the deal. This is really what matters is heart change. In Old Testament, saints got that at points. You can see new covenant language where people are talking about creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me. Where does that come from? That's because heart change is what it's always been, what it's all about. But in the new covenant, it's clarified. Heart change. It's what Jeremiah talked about. It's Ezekiel 36, heart change. It's what we are when we become Christians. We are those who have received a heart transplant because we needed one. We needed something to come out and something to come in. That's what we're talking about here. It was predicted all the way back in the Old Testament, but carries forward into the church and is also promised, as you see in verse 10, a covenant with the house of Israel. Israel will receive new hearts. The remnant, those who have been believing Jews have always had a heart transplant. And ultimately ethnic Israel is the fulfillment of those promises in the millennial kingdom where Israel believes. And I believe that there'll be a physical remnant believing in Israel, in Jerusalem, worshiping the true Christ on the throne for a thousand years to fulfill those promises. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled by the new covenant. I will make you a great nation. And then it's a new covenant that is for all the families of the earth to be blessed. Genesis 12, one through three. So Hebrews is saying that this new covenant is fulfilled in Christ, in the New Testament church as well. He's speaking of it, applying prophecy from Jeremiah 
prophecy that's directed to ethnic Israel within the church now. I want you to be clear on that, that this is a gospel promise for us. And it says in verse 10, it's something that the Lord declares. The Lord declares. This is an inward dynamic. This is a spiritual work on the heart and the mind. The law had been written on tablets of stone. Do you remember that? Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. We talked about all that last week. If you want to be caught up on a lot of Old Testament, listen to the sermon last week. But God spoke on the law, into the law externally with an external code, Exodus 32, 15 and 16. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4 and 9 speaks of an internal problem that had to be solved even back then. You know what he called hearts that were unsaved in the Old Testament? They were called what, class? uncircumcised hearts. There was physical circumcision in the Mosaic law. We know that that was required. That was to represent separation for the nation of Israel. Separation as God's people, purity within the ethnicity of Judaism. All of that was physically separated to be clear, but that doesn't save you. You have to have a heart change. And it was predicted and spoken of even in Jeremiah's day. Even Moses wrote of this in Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's new covenant language. It's heart surgery language. It's all applied forward. It was applied then to anyone that believed, but it's applied into the church. Don't make too much of the idea of God putting the laws in our minds and writing them on on their hearts. Don't make too much of a difference between minds and hearts here. It's good to think about that. It's speaking of the inner man. I mean, we're talking about loving the Lord our God with what? All our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our minds. All of this is speaking of the inner man. The heart has been said to be the mission control center of a human person, anyone. It's your heart. It's speaking of your mind, your emotions, and your will, and your affections. It's, it's what God changes about you. It's poetic parallelism here to put heart and mind there, but that's what God is writing on. Think about that. What kind of surgery? What does this look like? Ezekiel 36, we read it last week. I will give you, verse 26, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That means a soft heart, not a sinful heart, but a soft heart, a transformed heart. I mean, we we don't even have the ability to know God intimately until this happens. Please understand that. You're just tuned into FM. I mean, AM. I mean, you, you, you're not tuned into FM yet. You're not tuned into satellite radio. I don't even know how to work satellite radio, by the way. It's how behind I am. But it's like, it's like you're, you're not in the right frequency. You don't understand spiritual things. You don't understand truths. You don't understand Christ yet until he takes that tech out and puts new technology in, spiritual technology that comes to life where you're a true worshiper of God. Something's different about you. You love people that are Christians and are completely different than you are, but you love them because they're Christians now. That's, that's new heart 
dynamic. John 3, 7, he told, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Titus 3, 5, what a description of soul surgery. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's in printing where God is imprinting his truth, making his mark on your life. You're different. You don't like to do the things you used to do. You don't like to go to the places you used to go. Why? Because of some external rearrangement? No, he changed you from the inside. That's Christianity. That's what we have. He fixed the fundamental flaw of the old covenant with a heart transformation. It's important to understand that anyone in the Old Testament that ever was saved, that ever is going, went to heaven, went to heaven because of the same heart transformation. They just didn't understand it with the same clarity that we understand it. Remember David in Psalm 40, verse eight, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. That's why Jesus did say to Nicodemus before he died on the cross, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, basically the the, the teacher of the law, the greatest spiritual leader known in the world, Jesus is talking to that person who is unsaved and unregenerate and not able to fully grasp what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, in his dialogue with Nicodemus, is reflecting on the washing of regeneration that's mentioned in Ezekiel 36, the washing out by the water where it looks, gives imagery of the idols of the land being washed away. And he's saying, this is a picture of the cleansed life where you are born again. Ezekiel 36 and 30, Jeremiah 31. It's the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3, 1 to 6 talks about things that were not yet clear in the Old Testament where Jew and Gentile were going to come together as one people and one church. They were going to be able to believe in Christ and now we understand that that was God's plan all along for God to change hearts from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It was all embedded in the Old Testament. The Messiah was embedded in the Old Testament. Spurgeon talked about this. He said, it's when the Lord writes his law in our hearts and makes us know the far-reaching power and scope of the commands of Scripture. He causes us to understand that it touches not only our actions and words and thoughts, but indeed the most transient places of our imaginations. I mean, the Holy Spirit is working in your life, right? As a Christian, suddenly things that you used to not be concerned about are now concerns. Did I look too long? Did I look at this? Did I say that? What was my motivation? Am I speaking truth? Am I telling the whole truth? Don't beat yourself up legalistically over those dynamics, but acknowledge that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and checks our spirit and tells us when we're on the right path or when we're veering off. Pay attention to those things. He's fit you with the new radar. That's why we can repent. And that's why we can come afresh to the gospel and say, because of the Lord Jesus, because he's died for my sins, I'm cleansed. I'm free. Forgive me. Let me walk the persevering march of faith to the end. In faith, listen, I was looking up uh, something from a journal, Global Cardiology Science and Practice Journal. It was in 2017 that um, there was a celebration. It was the 50th anniversary. This is hard to believe, the 50th anniversary 
of the first human heart transplant. Can you believe that wasn't going on 50 years ago? Wow. I don't know. Maybe I read it wrong, but it's 50 years ago. I mean, seriously. It says the first human heart transplant that had been carried out by a South African surgeon, Christian Chris Bernard at Groot Schuur Hospital in Cape Town on December 3rd, 1967. It's a daring operation. Charismatic surgeon received immense public attention around the world. The patient's progress where it was covered by the world's media almost on an hourly basis. There was Mr. Lewis Washansky. He died 18 days after the first heart transplant. But then another patient led a longer life of 19 months later after his heart was transplanted. Remarkably, Bernard's fifth and sixth patients lived 13 to 24 years respectively after. So a lot going on. They talked about in this article, an auxiliary pump of a heterotopic um, heart transplantation where the donor could act as an auxiliary pump to, to make the surgery successful. It was a very courageous heart surgery. Well, one person quoted a scenario where Bernard, I guess he was kind of a, a charismatic type doctor or an outgoing doctor, aggressive. You'd have to be if you were the first doctor to perform these kinds of surgeries, right? It makes total sense. Listen to this. It says, on one occasion, Dr. Christian Bernard, the first surgeon ever to do a heart transplant, impulsively asked one of his patients, another doctor, Dr. Philip Blayberg, if he said, would you like to see your old heart? So he called him in at 8 p.m. on a subsequent evening. The men stood in a room of the Groot Schur Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. Dr. Bernard went up to the cupboard, took down a glass container and handed it to Dr. Blayberg. Inside the container was Blayberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there stunned in the silence. The first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Isn't that bizarre? Finally, he spoke and for 10 minutes plied Dr. Bernard with technical questions. Then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container and said this. I thought this was instructive. This doctor responding to Bernard said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He handed it back, turned away, never to look at it again probably a decent attitude to have towards the old Christian life. So this is the old heart that's caused me so much trouble. I'm not going back there. I'm walking away from that. Never to look at that again. I'm moving on. I've got a new heart. I've got a new life. I've had a heart transplant that the Lord has given me. Well, not only does the Lord change us on the inside internally, but there's intimacy. Look at verse 10b. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you realize in the Old Testament, God, when he was called father, which was only two or three occasions in the entire Old Testament, was only father in a corporate sense. People would not dare pronounce the Hebrew name for God. God was distant. Now, people in particular, like Moses and Abraham and Noah and others who walked with God, had some level of intimacy with God. There were Christophanies where Christ would make a pre-appearance in the Old Testament. They had relationship with God in that way. But by and large, corporate Israel knew God more generally, not intimately. The fatherhood of God and the name father for God is the Christian's name for God. Do you realize that? 
we know God as our Abba Father or our Daddy because God wanted it that way for us in the new covenant, in Christ. We are independently interconnected, um, interdependently. We're, we're priests and the, we're part of the priesthood of the believer where we have an intimate, personal, one-on-one relationship with the Lord, where we walk with him personally, and then we're interdependently walking as a corporate body corporately. It's an amazing dynamic in the New Testament. And this was all predicted. I will be their God. They shall be my people. It was a phrase that was spoken in the Old Testament a couple times, Jeremiah 30, 22, Exodus 6, 7, Ruth 1, 16, when Ruth um, said, do not urge me to leave you, saying that to Naomi, the mother-in-law, to return and follow you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. It's about as intimate as it got in the Old Testament for the average believer. We have so much more. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. That's what the new covenant community looks like. Say, what does this verse mean? This is one of the most intriguing verses in my study this week for me. It points out the very real dynamic of the new covenant that you need to understand. That it's not only internal, not only is it um, intimate, but it's impartial. It's impartial. Everybody who's part of the new covenant is a true believer. In the new covenant, there are not the haves and the have-nots. You say, well, duh. (laughs) But just not so fast. Think about this for a second. You might be at church and not really be the church yet. That's what this means. To be in the new covenant means you have a transformed heart. Now that's different than the old covenant. In the old covenant, it was a mixed community. If you were born as a little Jewish baby boy, you were circumcised and you were in the covenant community, whether you were a believer or not. Little girls, automatically, if you're a Jew, you're in. You're in until you're out. It's a lot like the... uh, you know, the way some denominations trend in infant baptism, which we don't practice here, but infant baptism sometimes can confuse children to believe that they're good because they were baptized in the church, they're inside the denomination, I'm all good. And a lot of times they're treated as people who are inside the church until they disqualify themselves by sinning and then they're outside of the church. But really baptism is performed as believer's baptism because baptism follows the transformed life and the transformed heart. The old covenant Jewish boy, again, would be circumcised like Christ was on the eighth day. It was all founded in Genesis 17, circumcision to show ethnic cleansing, being different, trying to keep the race pure with that. You would have transplants from neighboring communities that would come to cities of refuge and would be affirmed as proselytes or proselytes into the uh, Jewish community. But it's interesting. You would have a lot of people who would be unbelievers who were affirmed under the old covenant. And that's where a verse like verse 11 comes from. In the new covenant, you don't have to teach each other. 
That's verse 11. Look at this. They shall not teach. You don't have to teach each other. Everybody's already a believer. It says each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. In the old covenant, a neighbor, which would be a citizen of the old covenant, would go to another neighbor and would teach them and say, listen, I know that you're inside the old covenant as if you're showing up to church or showing up to temple worship, but you still need to know the Lord. You say, aren't we supposed to teach each other in the church? Yes, that's to build each other up. But we're not supposed to be evangelizing ourselves within the church. Now, do I mean that we shouldn't preach the gospel in church? No, we should. The gospel should be preached. But by and large, when you're gathering for church, you're gathering as believers, not unbelievers. Where should the primary emphasis of evangelism be with inside the church? You know where? The children's ministry down the hall. That's where children are being won to Christ as they are being immersed in the word of God and the gospel. We shouldn't assume that they're believers, but a lot of times children who are raised in the family of faith, the household of faith do believe and the faith is passed on, but it's still the spirit of God invading a life where they repent and believe. Otherwise they're not believers. Listen, one of the biggest problems with the church is this. It's that today people are trying to gather communities together in the name of Christ with unbelievers. The goal for most churches in our nation is to gather as many people together as you can. And it's amazing if you really think about it for a second, what people use as a way to get people to church. They use all kinds of programs, all kinds of promises, all kinds of inspirational speeches. People talk about politics. They talk about self-help. They talk psychologically. They, they promise business practices and leadership practices to woo and inspire people to be in church. It's true. It, it really doesn't get more complicated than that. If you're a believer, you love to worship God. If you're, all right, now I'm going to say this. Just as an example, I know the, the video glitched, but let's just, let's just call it for what it is, right? As a believer, watch this. So what, right? We're preaching Christ this morning, right? It's a success just because we're trying to be doctrinally pure. We're preaching the gospel. We're, we're learning the word of God this morning. That's what matters. We want to be programmatically excellent. We want to do well on all fronts. But really what matters is coming together. And if you're with other believers, your heart lifts. If you're with the word of God being preached and you're being edified, the heart lifts, right? If the worship is pure, Christ honoring, the heart lifts. But if you're an unbeliever, if you're a naturally minded person, you're kind of sitting there going, well, I give that a C, I give this a D minus, I give this a B. Well, that was good, you know, this, this, this. And that's consumerism that's based on non-believers being gathered in the name of Christ. Number one thing that purifies a church is what? Persecution, persecution, programmatic, Church ministry really takes a backseat when there's real threats of persecution. It's just like in your life when someone gets terminally ill or sick or there's a funeral and things get really serious and you cut through all the, the uh, sort of external garbage that's, that's 
causing families to have angst and stuff and everybody really gathers around and the real stuff comes out of, hey, I really love you after all and let's reconcile and let's be together. It's the same thing in the church. When people are really persecuted or suffering, that's when the church shows up. That's believers, believers in the new covenant. Trying to gather people in church who are not believers is like gathering a bunch of cats It's just in my notes here. It's gathering a bunch of cats into a dog training school. Imagine that, leashing them, trying to give a cat a command to sit and stay and roll over. Looking at a cat and say, bark, right? I'm sure there's a cat. Somebody will say, man, my cat can sit and stay, but you know what? You can tell I'm a real cat lover. Not really. A lot of people spend a lot of time and money keeping people at church, promoting issues because you're trying to touch hearts and keep people inspired when they won't be. Ultimately, when the word of God's opened up and there's accountability, people leave. First John 2, 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Well, one final thing, look at verse 11. It says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. All know me from the weakest Christian. All know every, there's no difference between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man or woman in Christ. Everybody, you have people who have weak faith and people who are strong in faith, but we all have something in common. All of us know Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how much you know if you don't know Jesus. But if you know Jesus, that's what really matters. And then you build on that being truly regenerate. Well, finally, verses 12 and 13. Not only do we have a new covenant that has become um, intimate and eternal and it's unchanging in your life and it's impartial but it's also irrevocable it's full of forgiveness you see that in verse 12 for i will be merciful towards your iniquities their iniquities and i will remember their sins no more this is the true basis for being regenerate the true reason why your heart changes because of the cross you've been forgiven of your sins christ's sacrifice means a lasting sacrifice that's secured by his atoning death. The wrath of God no longer rests on your conscience. Why? Because you've been completely forgiven. Now, what does it mean that God does not remember your sins anymore? Should we picture God as sort of the, you know, white-haired gentleman who's an old man, kind of bleary-eyed up in heaven, like up in some sort of attic room, kind of wandering around. Well, you know, those people are saved, so I'm not concerned about... No, I mean, in a fatherly sense, we're still called upon as children to confess our sins, right? We're still called to reconcile things and make things right with our heavenly father. He does see our sins. We are covered in the righteousness of Christ. But he's also relating to us dynamically. We can't be like children who believe we're using the righteousness of Christ as some sort of blanket shield in church, like an irreverent little boy going, ha, 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 I can do whatever I want because I'm in Christ. That's not how it is. 
How do we reconcile God not remembering our sins with his great omniscience? Guess what? You don't. God does know everything, but at the same time, he has buried those sins in terms of he is not charging his sin, our sins that we've done against him against us. This is kind of the way I wrote, wrote it out. God is not holding your sins. You committed against him against you because God held your sins. You committed against him against his son on the cross instead. Okay. There under mercy. Your sins are under grace. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. And in Christ, we have both. He doesn't give you what your sins deserve and he gives you grace in heaven instead. It's a full forgiveness. Once for all, it's what the sacrificial system could not do. Christ did it. At one time, once for all, look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Stop there. It's a final atonement. It's new in the sense that the old covenant has been done away with. Something had to be done away with or made obsolete with historical precision. We know that Christ at Passover said, I am taking this cup that's poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. That was right before he went to the cross. He was establishing the new covenant in his blood. It was a promise that was given to us, established in his blood. And every time we take the Lord's table, we're remembering that. The end of verse 13, he predicted, predicts something else though. Look at this. It says, And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What does he mean there? Well, you just have to have a quick history lesson to understand that. In AD 70, we've talked about this. The Rome Rome came and attacked Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. And the temple system sort of physically died at that point. Christ had already come and established a new covenant. So if anyone was still practicing sacrifices at AD 70, Rome came and made sure that no one would be doing that anymore. So that's the prediction here. And it was fulfilled. What is becoming obsolete, meaning any remaining sacrificing that was going on is vanishing away. The Qumran cult, which was outside of Jerusalem, they were looking on and they were, uh, they were praying for a new priesthood and for the corrupt priesthood in Jerusalem to be done away with. Well, it was done away with, but what they began to look for was some sort of ritualist paradise with never ceasing sacrifices to be carried on. You know what that's called? Legalistic heaven. If your version of heaven is always doing right forever and ever, Like, oh, if I could just do right all the time, ritualistic heaven. If I could just keep myself, my head above water, just well enough to stay breathing and live in life. You know what? You're just like Martin Luther was. You're stuck. You got to be free from all that and say, no, I was buried with Christ. I died with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I'm raised with Christ. I'm set free. My old heart has been made new. What was Luther's testimony? Romans 1.17, he read, the righteous shall live by faith. And he said this, 
Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God and extremely disturbed in my conscience. And I could not believe that God was placated by my satisfaction, all his work. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at the place of Romans 117. Ardently desiring to know what it is Paul wanted for me. And I began to understand, listen to this, that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. If you're struggling in your conscience and you're trying to work your way to being right with God, trying to solve an internal solution or problem with an external solution, if you're trying to solve your inside problem with an outside solution, maybe it's just that you haven't yet gone to God and said, I need the gift of faith. I need to believe. Will you please soften my heart, take out my stony heart and give me a new one. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. I really do want to appeal to you. Bow your heads and let's pray. In your own heart, ask yourself, am I a true believer? Draw a circle around yourself and just think for a second. Am I saved by grace alone? Or am I trying to achieve righteousness or achieve self-worth self-purpose? Am I trying to do it all in this life or do I need to be saved in this life and set for the next life? If you're sitting here and you haven't yet cried out to God, cry out to God in your heart and say, Lord Jesus, I believe on you and you alone to save me. You are the perfect savior. You are the sacrifice for my sins. Lord, bury those sins, take them away, nail them to the cross. And I believe that you conquered sin and death to save me from death and hell. Let me live for you in this life and for all of eternity. Stoke the fire in my heart and give me new life. Give me the heart transplant that I so desperately need. Save me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.